going to be the last one from Portugal because I'm going to LA on Saturday and I am dreading this trip a little bit because I don't want to be in LA. I don't want to travel. I don't want to go on two different airplanes and subject myself to the police state that is air travel these days, international air travel, especially just a little bit dreading it, but I'm trying to take my own advice from my staying on track Substack article from last week where I said that I'm walking back from the track after a run, even though it's through kind of a dank neighborhood, industrial and not very nice neighborhood. I always feel like I'm walking on the beach or in the mountains. I'm so in such a good frame of mind after a, a run and how, you know, this country house in Portugal that's endlessly delayed that I see as my source of peace, you know, eventually that I'm, that I'm hoping to have barbecues and swimming pool and sauna and a nice office to work at and this whole idea of that and the peace of mind around that, you know, that maybe when, after you go for a run and you're walking through some dank neighborhood and you feel like a million bucks walking, breathing in the open air and you're, you, you realize it's not a matter of place being in a nice country house, but it's a matter of mind. So maybe I can take my own advice and enjoy LA. It's a matter of mind. It's not a matter of being in LA or here or in a country house. It's just, your attitude toward it. So I'm trying to take my advice, but I am fucking dreading it. I'm not going to lie. I just don't want to deal with the trip. And I, I think, you know, I, I can more comfortably get into a mindset where I can enjoy a place that I'm not looking forward to. If I acknowledge how much I'm fucking dreading this, this two flights, thank God they don't make you wear masks and all that bullshit. Shove shit up your nose. It's better than it was a couple of years ago, but it's still, it's not, it's not humane. It's not civilized. So anyway, that's just, you know, I'll, pro I'll probably still podcast from LA because when I bring my podcast equipment, I was able to do it last year. A bunch of different things for this podcast. One thing that I did was I talked last week about the proposed debate on Joe Rogan between that charlatan Peter Hotez, who's now apparently implicated in the creation of COVID perhaps. And there's a video of him just saying like that vaccines need, you know, half a decade or more of development. And then as soon as Biden's elected, he justifies that this vaccine got plenty of time. So it's pretty funny. And I, I warn people, don't defend this guy. He's obviously a total scumbag and pharma shill and you'll regret it. You'll regret defending him. So um, anyway, there was that whole thing last week. And then um, a guy who I follow on Twitter, he was part of the Great Barrington Declaration. This guy, Martin Kuldorf, I think that's how you say his name. He's like a Harvard, I don't know if he's an epidemiologist, not that I give a shit about stuff like that, but he's a, a guy in the health, public health sector who along with Jay Bakhtiara uh, and, and a couple other guys drafted the Great Barrington Declaration when COVID happened. This is in you know April of 2020, March of 2020. And basically their idea was protect the vulnerable, let every, everybody else, you know, catch COVID and spread it as needed. Don't restrict things. Don't lock people down. And it, you know, it really proved to be way, way better advice and way more scientifically sound than what we actually did. And it was based on, it was also based on like, you know, centuries of understanding of what to do during a pandemic. So this guy, I think is pretty legit. I follow him. I think he's credible. Um, he's a bit of a, still like part of the medical system and that whole establishment but you know he was right about things he has credibility and so he was saying that he's in favor of 
you know, he, he said something about like, oh, he said vaccines do not cause autism. He just said it def definitively and said he was willing to have a debate with anybody. And initially I, I quote tweeted him. Come on, Oscar. Must you be barking that loud? Come on, Oscar. Maybe Heather's coming home, but I don't know why he's barking like that. Come on, Oscar. It's sad, too, because we're leaving him in a caretaker. I mean, his caretaker is like amazing. This woman lives in like a paradise and he has all his dog friends and it's great for him. But uh, it's just sad when she, she picks him up. He runs over, licks her like crazy. He really likes her. And then when she starts carrying him down the stairs, he looks back and realizes, oh, I'm being separated from my family for the summer. So it's uh, it's kind of sad, but it's he's probably even happier with her, to be honest. He's got all his dog friends and she's she's like a dog whisperer. I think I've tweeted out some of the photos that like have him and like all these other dogs sitting just completely still for the picture, which is very hard to do. So anyway, sad for him. He's, he's stopped barking because Heather came home. But um, but anyway, so this guy, uh, Koldorf, he tweets out, you know, he, that he would debate. And I quote tweet it and I say, Joe Rogan should have him debate RFK because you'd have two intelligent interlocutors like going back and forth. And you know, maybe we'd learn something and I'd be interested in it. And so I had that up for like maybe an hour and then I thought about it and I was like, that's a fake tweet. That's fake. I'm being fake. I'm just tweeting this because it sounds reasonable and I'm pro science and pro inquiry and whatever else sounds good to stand for. But the truth is, the real truth is I'm not interested in the debate. I I'm not saying other people shouldn't be, or it wouldn't be a good debate. It probably would. And if I were you know, hoping that the overreach of the MRNA mandates didn't taint the other vaccines, um, I would want someone like him representing that cause because he's smart and he's measured and he's not some sort of shill. But what I realize is me personally, I don't really give a shit. I'm out. I'm just fucking out on this shit. I don't really care about the debate. I'm not interested in it anymore. I've just moved on paradigmatically. The idea that you're perfectly healthy and you need to inject something, whatever it is, whoever, you know, from one of these companies that's been, you know, that lies to you and it's been fined and been sued and, and you're going to voluntarily inject a flu shot or something while you're completely healthy, just so, you know, in case you don't get this thing. But I would never say never if there were like bodies in the street and aer aerosol Ebola was killing people left and right. You know, I'm not saying I wouldn't take it in that case, but just in general, like I'm just the paradigm of you totally healthy. Go inject yourself because because the science says so. Um, I'm just out on that. I just I'm just going to take care of my own health do my own research, run, get sun, eat healthy, sauna, do push-ups. I mean, I'm just going to try to take care of my own bodily health. And of course, if I get into an accident or something or break a leg, I'm going to want to go to a hospital and have it treated. But this idea of like, whatever the latest thing is, inject it preemptively, even though you're totally healthy, you don't have any symptom that you're fighting, just in case you might catch a particular kind of cold or a particular kind of flu virus they don't know which strain. I'm just out. I don't really care, you know, and the whole thing of whether it causes autism. I think it probably does. Autism has exploded in the last few decades and they know there was thimerosal in the older vaccines. I don't, I think they removed thimerosal's mercury, which is extremely poisonous and which does cause autism, but they did remove that from the childhood vaccines, I think. So the continued explosion of autism would cut against that, right? Because if it's the mercury that caused it, why is it still so high? after they ostensibly remove the mercury. So I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but I just think you're going to get in a very difficult spot where they're not going to be able to prove it doesn't cause autism. I, I just think it's a very hard thing to prove a negative. And they may not be able to prove that it does. They're just going to be these correlations. 
but I don't really care. I just think it, my position is pretty simple. These people aren't trustworthy. The, this pharmaceutical companies are not trustworthy. The public health apparatus of our government is just not trustworthy. It's the same people that said, take this vaccine and you won't get COVID. I mean, they fucking lie all the time about everything. They were doing social distancing and mandatory masking and all this. Shit. I mean, it's just all bullshit. So, you know, what, what, what are we really looking at? We're, we're looking at trust these untrustworthy people to inject yourself when you have no acute problem right now. Um, and I'm just kind of out on that entire paradigm that I, I don't, it's just not something I'm interested in anymore. And they're not going to scare me back into it. And the fact that they would violate my rights and mandate stuff, it's like, fuck you. I just don't, I'm, I'm out. I don't, I don't believe you. I don't like, I don't agree with your whole paradigm. And I just, re, I reject it. You know, whether, whether it actually causes autism or not, um, I just think it's going to be really hard to know because the immune system is complex. It's a complex system. And they, they get, I, I think RFK said 72 vaccines by the time you're 18. I said it last podcast. And then I looked at like one of those debunker fact checks. And this is the debunk. They said, we counted them up and it's not 72. We counted roughly 60. So roughly 60. So the debunk was that it was only 60 as if that really matters. Oh, 60. Oh, it's only 60. No big deal. But the fact that you get 60 vaccines now when you used to get 10 or however many you used to get three, you know, when maybe generation before us. And there's all these, not just autoimmune, not just autism, but autoimmune disease and chronic problems uh, throughout society. You know, the idea that we can just shove so many of these potions into these little babies in a complex system and have any fucking idea what the results will be, you know, whether SIDS is part of that autism. I mean, again, like you're, you're messing with something really complex. And even if even if they work, you know, even if, okay, well, there's less whooping cough because you got the vaccine or there's less, there's less tetanus or, or whatever it is, or less meningitis or whatever. Maybe it, maybe it helps with some of that stuff. Um, what's the long-term effect on the immune system? You know, how, how are these kids, how resilient are these kids to other viruses and stuff? I talked about a little bit last week and I just don't think they know. I just don't think they're, these are a bunch of midwits, most of them. And I just don't think they care or know. I think they're just looking at first order effects utilitarians that they are and how it benefits them, the control, the money, compliance. And, you know, the, if the metric that shows up, fewer kids have this particular ailment when they're young and that's enough, that's enough to put it in the uh, net positive bucket. And so, okay, then you got to take this one. Oh, and this one also, and this one also, and then you're up to 60 before you know it. So I don't really care about the debate. I, I just, to me, it's just going to be like, this study shows this, this study shows that. Some people may be interested. I'm not giving you advice. Do whatever you want to do. Get informed. But I just, I realize I'm not interested. I'm out. My paradigm is take care of your own health. If there's just some absolutely uh, insane pathogen somehow, it probably came from a lab that they created anyway. Um, okay, if there's, you know, if I see people uh, in my level of health, my age, people I know dropping dead left and right, I may have to rethink it, but I'm not just going to preemptively on spec, on faith, just start shooting myself with stuff. Fuck that. I'm out. Debate all you want. N not interesting to me. Also a great thread on this. Um, this woman, AJK, she made a thread about her kids, one of whom is autistic, the other, which, the other of which has cerebral palsy. Uh, she has four kids, so two of them are sensibly healthy, but she went through this huge thread on how she you know, vaccinated all of them and 
the the one that became autistic didn't become autistic right after the vaccination. So she didn't think it was a thing. And when people would wonder and ask about it, she'd get angry about it. And she realized later that why was she so angry? Why was she so sure that it was not caused by the vax? And she realized she had an emotional need to be sure because, you know, she didn't want to feel like, did I give my kids something? Did I subject them to something? And also just explains she had an explanation. She had that sort of very stressful and uh, painful situation with sort of a, a resolution. It wasn't a good one. I mean, she had to treat her and she's still struggling, but you know, at least she had an explanation and then to change that and to think, uh Oh, did I, did, did the medical system, you know, with my consent, um, poison my kid. And then she started thinking about, she got a flu shot when she was pregnant, the baby was perfect. Everything was normal. And then came out with cerebral palsy and is wondering about that too. And she says she doesn't know. She could she definitely cannot. This is why I'm not really interested in the debate because you can't prove that it caused any of those things. It could have been anything else. Lots of toxins in the environment. Could it be genetic? Could it be a combination? I don't really believe in genetics alone. Oh, you have a gene to, you know, be sick. I think it's more like if that gene gets expressed based on certain environmental factors, then that will manifest, that illness will manifest. But I don't think there's a lot of genes that are just like, they only exist to create illness. I think that would be, the gene would be for something else useful, but then in combination with certain stressors that didn't exist when that gene was adaptive during evolution, new stressors come in, mercury poisoning, the adjuvants and the vaccines, whatever else is aluminum that's in there, whatever else is going on in the environment, pesticides, things that weren't around when that gene uh, got into the gene pool, um, then in combination with those toxins, with those environmental stressors, diseases start to occur if you have that gene. But the purpose of that gene is not to make you sick. It's something adaptive, almost certainly. It's just that it may have sort of a dual function when stressed. That's my view. So I don't really think genetic people are just genetically sick. I think it's genes combined with environment. Anyway, it's a good thread, this AJK thread. I retweeted it and uh, recommend that uh, people check it out. Um, it's pretty good. And she says it. She can't say for sure. She just is wondering why people on either side are so sure. Like, how could even Martin Kulldorff, who's reasonable, say it just doesn't cause autism? I mean, how could he know? I think proving that negative would be really difficult. And and the point where you know, well, the mercury which causes autism is taken out, so it can't be that. Well, there's still aluminum, I think. The uh, adjuvants that uh, that are these, you know, the chemicals that go in with the actual virus or dead virus or whatever it is in the vaccine. Um, I think RFK was saying during the Rogan podcast that they're supposed to provoke a strong response. Like you want something a bit poisonous so that the immune system gets active when it, and, and starts to build antibodies to the, you know, to the dead virus or whatever, the live virus, the little bit of live virus that they inject in you. And so I think it's not an accident that those things are, are bad for you. And then those things have second, third order effects in the body, especially over time, perhaps. Um, all right, enough about vaccines and shit. I really, I don't care about them that much. I think this weird religion around them is, is fucked up, but that's that's all I really got to say about that. Um, I mentioned a few podcasts ago, my big idea, Tree 3. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but this game generates a much faster growing function, a much bigger number than the incredibly powerful, iterative, fast growing functions that create Graham's number. And that one is sort of the Tao, you know, God, whatever you want to call it. And the other is sort of AI, sort of a human, you know, sort of false idol of sorts. And I, I think that's a big idea. And it's, 
I've just, it just it just grown even more in my mind. I wrote and talked a little bit about the uh, different orders of infinities, the countable infinities, like the integers, you know, one through infinity. And then the real numbers, you know, the points on a line where integers, there's gaps, right? Between one and two, there's one and a half, there's gaps. There's still infinitely many integers, right? If you have a line and you measure by inches and you have an infinitely long line, there's infinitely many inches on that line, but there's many gaps between the inches and the real numbers cover all the gaps. And in fact, there's more real numbers between zero and one than there are integers between, than there are integers period up to infinity. So it's a higher level of infinity. It's uncountable infinity, whereas the integers is considered a countable infinity. And so again, it's similar. It's like one thing is growing in a certain direction, but the other thing doesn't have gaps. It doesn't have gaps in the, in the reality, the, the points on a line, only the integers. The integers have gaps. And so, okay, so that was like sort of the big idea number one, sort of the, the difference of this. And the interesting thing about tree three is they don't really know how big it is. They, they have a lower bound that's extremely huge. In other words, they know it's at least bigger than X, but they don't know what the upper bound is. They don't have that. And they've only proven, I believe this is true, that it's, that it's finite based on this kind of infinite math. Using finite math, it would take far, far, far more than the time in the entire universe it would take to even reset itself and come back to where it is, according to the uh, recurrence time theory. It would take much, much more time than that, way, way, way more time than that to make the proof that it was finite. So you have this sort of mythical number that's kind of, it's kind of like the universe itself, right? We don't really know that it's finite or not. It's, it may be finite. It may have started with the Big Bang and it's only been able to expand in all directions at the speed of light since then, maybe. So maybe it's finite, but yet, we don't really know exactly. And so this tree three is kind of like that. It may be finite. It's probably finite, but we don't really have an upper bound for it. So I was just thinking about that a little bit. And then the second big idea, which I realized, I didn't think it was a big idea, but now I realize it is a big idea, which I talked about last week was utilitarianism being a scourge. And I went through it in detail, but there's like kind of a, a big implication from that because if you can't flip the trolley switch and that trolley problem where the trolley's going to run over four people and you switch it. So you have it kill one person who was not originally in harm's way. And you're like, Oh, I'll kill this one person. I'm saving four. Oh, I can kill people. It's for the greater good. Great. Great idea. You know, if you can't do that, if we realize like that's just way too dangerous, not only to empower people to kill people, they think it accrues to the greater good, which is insane to have license to kill a person who's perfectly innocent just because you're going to save more people or you think you you'll save more people the fact that maybe maybe it wasn't going to hit those other people but it really did hit the guy you switched it to once you realize oh i can't really act for the greater good morally i don't, I don't have that's not a, a real framework to act morally and you start to think about it how big that is like anything you might do for the good is sort of meddling you know it, it's not just you know kill kill one to save four now if it doesn't involve i got into it on twitter with somebody and I was like, you don't know the results of your actions and you don't know the nth order effects of those actions too, not just the immediate results. They're not certain and you have uncertainty. He's like, well, if, if you're going to be like that, then how do you go to the store? How do you do anything? And I kind of dismissed him. I was like, well, I go to the store and I am uncertain. It might not be worth it. I may go to the store, waste my time or buy something that I realized later wasn't worth it. And it may not be worth it to go to the store. I may get you know, run over by a car on the way to the store. I don't know. We have uncertainty. But why am I able to go to the store? Why am I able to live my life and do things? And the reason is that 
because I'm not violating anyone's rights, right? Like, so it's, there's not that much at stake. Like if I'm wrong and the store sucks, okay. I mean, I'm willing to live with that error. It's, it's the errors on me and I'm not uh, injecting someone against their will for the greater good. I'm not like justifying a violation of anybody by going to the store. And, and on one hand, that's obviously a big distinction, you know? So I did, I did sort of like laugh at it and, and kind of dismiss the guy. But on the other hand, on the other hand, he has a point in that you really can't do anything moral at all um, under that framework because yes, if you're not violating someone's rights, it's not as big of a deal, but at the same time, you really don't know whether you're, what you're doing is, is going to be good or not. I mean, you may help somebody out. You may give someone a leg up. Um, a guy, a friend of mine, I know helped the guy out professionally and he was totally down and out and he just felt like helping the guy. And he said, the guy succeeded, you know, beyond his wildest dreams. And now is like a total douche. And you wonder, like, was that good? I mean, maybe a, a different person would have got some of those jobs and some of the, the work that that guy had and was a you know, better person. And so did he meddle and cause sort of a net negative? Obviously, it helped that guy. But maybe on net, like, he should have just stayed out of it and let the guy fend for himself. And, and this happens all the time. You know, you, you think you're, you're helping, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. You know that uh, saying, and it's real. You know, you help somebody, you think you're helping somebody, and actually you, you cause things that are worse. You know, you, you give somebody, uh, Heather just told me a really depressing story. There's this um, charity out here and they helped uh, a mentally retarded girl. Am I allowed to say that? Mentally challenged, mentally retarded girl. And apparently it was a really nice girl and she was like 32 years old and they got her a job and she uh, was late. She thought she was worried about being late to the job, even though she was like four hours early because she was very, like a very diligent kind of person. Like she wanted to do the right thing all the time. And she had uh, gone down into the train station and she screwed up and she went to the wrong side. The train she needed was on the other side, she realized. But she was too scared because she's mentally retarded, handicapped to uh, cross to the other side, like to get lost. So she just starts crossing on the tracks and everyone's trying to stop her, but she just goes and starts going and gets killed by a train. And it's a tragic story, but it's like, should they have given her a job where she had to get on a train? I mean, they were doing something nice, but the result was bad. Um, and I think this kind of thing happens all the time. Sorry for such a depressing story. That's a true story that happened here. And the result was bad. And I think that, that, that this is a big idea that utilitarianism kind of fails on its face. Certainly, you know, I think it's just without question that you can't violate someone else's rights. But even when you help, even when you meddle at all, sort of with the nature of things, you don't really know that it's going to accrue to the good. It might seem in the short first order effect, oh, this is a nice thing to do for this person, but you don't really know. And so it kind of almost takes you to a Buddhist framework where it's like, you know, that story where, you know, the guy falls off his horse and breaks his leg and says, what a tragedy. He was such a great horseman, but then a war starts and he gets spared from the war and a lot of his friends die and they said, oh, what a miracle that he broke his leg. And, you know, you just don't really know what, what the good news is, what the bad news is. And, but you do act in the world, right? And so it's more like you're acting based on certain principles, certain codes, right? If you owe money, you pay it back, things like that. If you um, do something wrong, you apologize. I mean, there's certain codes that, that, that people that you respect have. And I think that's something, but you're not doing it necessarily because you're moral or you're ethical. You just do it because that's the nature of living a good life. It's sort of, remember that monk that I talked about, that enlightened Buddhist monk that I went to see, he said, cause and effect karma. And I think he just meant that, like you know, the 
cause and effect. Like if you're the type of person who doesn't pay your debts, if, if you don't, if you lose a bet and don't pay up, if you're a weasel about it, um, that's the kind of person you are. you you become a weaselly person. That's who you are. That's who your character is. You try to uh, report your colleagues to their partners and associates that they said something wrong on Twitter or didn't get the medicine that you think they should get. You know, that's who you are. It's not like there's some, you know, God's going to come strike you with a lightning bolt, but you're that kind of weasel. You're that kind of scared, compliant weasel who's a liability for other people. And discerning people perceive that. They see what you say. They see how you are and they will move away from you. They will avoid you. Wise people will avoid you. And so there is sort of this cause and effect karma. And I think that most people with code, it's not because I'm such a moral person. I want to act like this. It's more like, I know my life will be better. I have faith that my life, I think it's a matter of faith more than philosophy in some ways, um, that my life will be better if I don't do certain things or if I do other kinds of things. It'll just be a better life, just cause and effect. Just my observations tell me that people I respect behave like this and I have more self-respect if I behave like this. And it's not a it's not a morality thing overtly. It's more just like code. It's more just cause and effect karma. And it's selfish, actually. It's actually very selfish to be um, ethical in, the, in those respects. It's not because you're a good person. It's because selfishly, you're going to have a better life. So I think it is kind of a big idea. And I think also utilitarianism is important because it's the primary lens through which morality is viewed by government institutions and politicians and educated people. They look at this cost-benefit analysis on a spreadsheet. And that's why they tout things like, oh, look, I gave to charity. You should contribute too. You know, they, they want to talk about their charity or how much good they're doing. And they think that makes them look good, but it actually makes them look shallow. It makes them look uh, craven. It makes them look weak. So anyway, I was thinking about that. Two big ideas. So I guess that the utilitarian one is not just some obscure philosophy academic point. I think it has real world uh, import. Um, there was the whole Russian coup or alleged Russian coup that ended in 24 hours. And it was funny because, yeah, I don't know how much of it was a PSYOP, how much of it was real. Certainly the uh, people on Twitter and the Western media seemed to be fooled by it and were jumping to some big conclusions that didn't happen. But um, it's just funny that when you think about January 6th, the farce of those people walking through the Capitol, and then even this, which might have even not been real with tanks and a gigantic armed division of men, that that's at least potentially a coup, potentially an insurrection, not people with clogged arteries walking around the Capitol building being escorted by police. I, the, the fact that the January 6th thing even persists at all is just, I just can't even wrap my mind around how people are just that willing to believe anything. That's the most Orwellian of all, that that was an insurrection. Also, another thing that was uh, really interesting, there's this guy, Twitter handle, Peruvian Bull. And he made, this, he made a thread that was talking about the Triffin dilemma. And I don't know that much about this, but I think basically what it is, is when you become the world's reserve currency, which the US is and the dollar is, you have certain privileges. And that means you can print money and people, it's not going to inflate that much, you know, relative to like Argentina or Zimbabwe or even Turkey. It's not going to inflate that much because there's always a demand for your money because other countries need to use it to buy oil, the petrodollar. They need that money to transact with each other, with the oil producers and uh, to buy goods and services. And so if there's a demand for your money, it's not going to inflate that much because there's always somebody willing to take it. And money gets inflated when the money, you know, in 
Weimar Republic Germany, nobody wants a wheelbarrow barrel full of cash. They'd rather have a loaf of bread. And so the demand for your money, for each unit of money goes way down and it inflates. When there is demand for your money, it, it prevents uh, hyperinflation. So that's good, right? So we can print money, which means we can just like conjure stuff into the air and buy stuff from people, which is like a huge, huge privilege. But there is a negative. That's why it's a dilemma is that because your economy and currency is strong, being the reserve currency, uh, it starts to make sense for manufacturing to take place outside of your country. So all of the production of things goes overseas. And that is, you know, that people blame the corporate CEOs for doing that. And they had a hand, they obviously did do that. But in some ways, just competitively, they may not have had a choice that, you know, just the economics of it was you must to compete with other countries and compete with other firms in your own country, move factories where the cost of production is much, much lower, where there is not a reserve currency where they can pay them in the local currency, which is worth quite a bit less. So we have this Triffin dilemma, which then gives the US lots of privilege because we can print money and other people get the inflation and we don't get the inflation and we can just sort of conjure up more money. But we have this negative, which is A, because we can print money, our government, instead of enriching the people, makes wars, useless wars, and squanders it on military industrial complex and pays Pfizer tens of billions and whatever else it wants to do with your tax money that's not good. But also, um, we start getting these trade deficits. So we start being net importers, right? So the US imports a lot more than it exports. And so we're sending money overseas to pay for this stuff. And then the countries that are selling us the stuff they start having a surplus of money from this trade surplus and they start storing it in treasuries. They, you know, they buy the risk-free uh, instrument, which is U.S. Treasury bills. So they start having all these treasury bills. China owns all these treasuries, Russia, all the countries around the world that are not the reserve currency own that. Now, if we now normally just take a step back, what normally happens with trade imbalances is if one country is a net uh, importer, another country is a net exporter. The exporter makes money, their economy grows, and then their currency starts to become more expensive. And then the currency of the net importer that's paid all of its money to acquire goods starts to get weaker. But what that does is that makes it cheaper for them to produce goods and cheaper for the foreign countries to buy goods. And that trade surplus starts to reverse. It's just nature correcting itself, right? The lion hunts the gazelles. There's too few gazelles. The lions starve. There's too few lions. The gazelles proliferate. And now more lions can eat. And then the lions proliferate and back and forth. Nature is healing, right? Nature will eliminate one or the other till there's balance. And the same thing would happen is that, you know, the country with, with the negative trade imbalance would then, it would be cheaper for them to make goods. And then the country with the stronger economy would buy their goods and the situation would flip. But because we're the reserve currency, that never gets corrected because we never, our currency doesn't get hurt from us being a net importer. So that sort of correction never happens. And in, in fact, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And so you now have these foreign countries with these big trade surpluses, and they use those trade surpluses to buy treasuries. But after the great financial crisis and a few years ago, the, the U.S. started bailing out its own, you know, printing its own money, more and more money. Countries in the last five years, I think five years, he says, but whatever, it doesn't really matter, are starting to not buy the treasury issuances. They're not buying anymore. And so now, you know, the U.S. is having to buy it themselves and hope for domestic demand and, and having to just put it on the balance sheets. So now they're like, okay, well, we have this trade surplus, but we don't really trust you anymore. It's not the risk-free instrument that we thought it was. And now, you know, we seized Russia's reserves. So they don't want U.S. treasuries because 
Russia just got their seas when they invaded Ukraine. And you know, what if what if China invades Taiwan or what if China does something we don't like? We have this leverage. They have leverage over us because they could dump the treasuries and cause an economic disaster. But they could also we could also screw them by doing what we did to Russia. And so then they also didn't want treasury. So they started buying U.S. assets, things like stocks and real estate. So we have a lot we have a lot more foreign owned assets than we used to because they stopped buying treasuries and start, started buying those instead. So basically, like there's a lot of money. I think it's like 42 trillion worth of assets is owned by foreigners. So this is sort of a big deal. They could dump that and we'd be in a little bit of trouble, but they won't because again, it would really hurt them too. But there's a little bit of a problem, which is that now that we're in sort of this economic war with with Russia and China and Iran and you know the BRICS countries are kind of trying to build their own thing. And the BRICS currency, this guy, at least in the thread, doesn't think it's going to really take off because all of the problems with the US and having the US abuse its power as the world's reserve currency, it goes, you know, twofold for these other countries. You know, no one wants Russia to be the issuer of the reserve currency or China. So um, that's not really a solution. But of course, Bitcoin exists now. So instead of buying US assets or US treasuries, if things get kind of ugly, you know, they can actually start opting out and buying this other asset. And if they start buying Bitcoin, you know, in size, which obviously it would have to be to be worthwhile, then the U.S. would have to start buying it. And then you have this sort of game theory thing where, holy shit, this thing just gets out of control. So I thought it was a really excellent uh, thread. And I recommend it. I didn't do it justice entirely, probably, the thread. And it has like sub-threads to explain these concepts a little bit more. And I just saw that Michael Saylor bought another like $373 million worth of Bitcoin for MicroStrategy. And they know, you know, BlackRock's trying to get that ETF and Fidelity and some of these other big players. They're trying to take this off the market, you know, front run these guys before uh, they get the big institutional clients able to get it. So I think that is uh, pretty inter pretty interesting. A couple other ideas, and this is going on for a bit. I was thinking about the whole idea of disinformation killing people. And when I made the colonoscopy observation and said that I didn't get one, even though I was like so nutless monkey about it and said, I'm not weighing in on the cost benefit. Just the idea that like, oh, that could deter someone and, and they could die of cancer. So you're killing people. Like your misinformation is dangerous. Oh, saying that people shouldn't wear their mask is dangerous. People could die. And I was just thinking about that. I was walking back from the run the other day and I was like, I feel like your love of Doritos is killing people. Don't talk about Doritos. Don't talk about the crunch. Even if, you, even if you're in shape and you don't eat them that often and you're not really at risk, you're not really substantially increasing your heart attack risk or your cancer risk by eating this garbage. Just even talking about them. I mean, someone you talk about how crunchy and crispy they are and how tangy and salty they are. Someone could hear that and be like, you know what? I'm going to go buy a bag of them. And then if they buy a bag, maybe they'll start buying more and maybe other people will buy it. And you know, the net total of that garbage that people eat, it does cause heart attacks and cancer. It does kill people. It takes up ICU beds, but you could also be dry. It's not just you though. Well, first of all, the healthcare costs, but also, you know, you could be driving and have a heart attack. I mean, how many people a year die behind the wheel having a heart attack? It's got to be, you know, in the order of a couple hundred. It's not like that rare and probably occasionally kill some other people on the road when they do it. So, you know, Doritos is killing people. I mean, Doritos is fucking killing people. I actually believe that. I'm not talking about Doritos itself. Doritos are like cigarettes. You know, cigarettes are killing people. But I'm talking about you talking about Doritos. And right now, even saying crisp and tang, even though I fucking don't like Doritos anymore, I would never eat them. Uh, I wouldn't say never. If I was at a party, I was drunk and there was nothing else to eat. I might eat a couple. But... Basically, I don't eat Doritos. I certainly don't buy them. 
But me even talking about it in that way, could someone listening to this podcast could reach for a bag after I describe them? And so I'm killing people. You know, the idea that like somehow I'm, I'm killing people because my talking about it triggered their thought to have someone they wouldn't have otherwise had some. And of course, like net over time, the more Doritos people have does kill people. This kind of like, this kind of reachy logic where it's like, well, they could read it and then they could think to themselves, what if I don't do this? It's like, oh, they'll read my colonoscopy tweet and think, hmm, I was going to get one, but yeah, he makes a good point. Then let me think about this and sort of the chain that they go down not to get it. And then later to get cancer, that's not really what we would call cause and effect, right? That's not like eat a hundred bags of Doritos a year and I die of some kind of cancer or I get diabetes or I get some, some disease from it, that and other kinds of foods like that, that's cause and effect. But if, if I just heard about it from somebody and then I go ahead and do something that, you know, my agency severs the cause and effect, right? The fact that like I heard about it, but then I chose to do this. There is a separate agent acting, right? There's a, there's a gap between what I heard and what I did. And I think one of the, uh, one of the ways in which people don't think for yourself, don't do your own research, don't take care of your health. They just think people are completely passive and have no agency. Like someone reading my colonoscopy tweet is going to die because of that. No, someone reading that might think about it and they're going to make a choice one way or the other and they're their own agent. And that's why information in this sense isn't the problem because they still have to make it, it to me, it's much more dangerous not to treat people like agents and not to encourage people to be their own agents and do their own research and make their own decisions. Yes. Somebody can, think that the highway keeps going and it's actually a cliff. And if you have bad information, although using your eyes and ears, you could probably see the cliff coming. Maybe you couldn't. Uh, maybe it's like a blind turn and boom, off a cliff, like after an earthquake or something like that. Yeah, that's, that could happen. Of course it could happen. But what's worse, that or society that completely outsources its cognitive function of information gathering and, and evaluation. And then you could have 2020 people locked down and forcing people to get injections. You could have obviously the extreme example, Nazi Germany. You could have, you know, there's genocides throughout history where everybody just thinks the same thing. They outsource their beliefs to a dictator or a leader, an authoritarian or an authority figure. And that's dangerous at scale, right? So people thinking for themselves, individual free thinkers, they can be dangerous individually. They also can be Albert Einstein too. I mean, so it's just like the individual thinking is so much more to be encouraged, obviously for, for a number of reasons. For, the first reason is while there are individual thinkers who can be dangerous, individuals can do dangerous things, obviously, or harm themselves or having misinformation can be dangerous to an individual, of course. But having people not explore different sources of information and not evaluate it for themselves is dangerous at scale. That's when you get mass, mass societal breakdowns. The individuals, individual cranks and kooks, there's some tragic things that happen to cranks and kooks, no doubt, but never at scale. They're rarely a danger to anyone else, usually a danger to themselves and occasionally a danger to someone else. But at scale, you can have really, really horrific consequences. And it's been done so many times in history. Those people, you get a bunch of people like that if everyone defers to experts and does what they're told. And then the people who think for themselves, you get Albert Einstein or, or Isaac Newton or someone like that because those people are obviously thinking for themselves. So it, to me, it's like, it, it's, it's not even close, you know, the, what, what happens with humanity when you, when you, the group think versus people who uh, do their own research and think for themselves. You have the possibility of innovation and you don't have the possibility of mass 
at scale horrors. So, you know, the idea that you should just do what you're told or not think for yourself or not do your own research or outsource your critical thinking and your evaluation, it's, it's beyond stupid. One other thing I'll, I'll leave with the, well, we'll see. I, I don't know if I'm going to leave this in, but I, I've been writing some raps for like the last five years. I just write them down because I feel like I have some good raps in me. I don't know if I can actually rap them. I'm going to need like Ted Bell to give me some sort of rap beat. I don't really, I was going to look up uh, on GarageBand how to do it. But I was sitting at the uh, Beach Cafe drinking a couple of beers by myself because Heather uh, wanted me to take Oscar and I don't wear sunscreen. So I'd been out for like an hour and I was like, all right, it's time for me to get in the shade. And Heather and Sasha were in the ocean. And on my phone, I uh, texted Heather this rap. So I'm going to try it here. We'll see. I have a limit. It's called the sky. I squeeze the juiciest gluteus maximi. I take probiotics to get my lactobacilli. I smoke the dusted weed to get even a little high. You can't step. You're a spineless guy. You get your news from the New York Times. You took the mRNA half a dozen times. You drink Diet Coke. I drink Italian wine. I trip balls with Rogers. You cry with Mina Kimes. You're a lap dog. I'm a porcupine. So that's, that's the taste of them. I have some that are much more uh, not suitable for work, but those are my clean ones at least. And I uh, figured I'd throw them in there. I'll, I'll see you in the edit if they, if they hold up. I'll do it one more time so I possibly uh, can keep one of these. All right, we'll see. Probably won't make the cut, but uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll, hear, I'll clean it up in post. Um, last thing I want to finish on is uh, a sense of optimism. My uh, friend of mine, this guy Brian, was in town. Cool guy. And, uh, you know, we, we go out for drinks and stuff. And we went, uh, he actually came to the track with me for a run and we were just talking and and even though he's a pretty based guy, he sort of bought into a little bit of the Malthusian climate change psyop in my, I think it's a psyop. Um, I'm not saying that there's nothing happening or that it's not possible, but I think it, mainly it's being used um, for purposes of control. And, you know, I said, I told him a story of this, uh, this book called The Alchemy of Air, where, you know, a little more than a hundred years ago, like the Royal Society of something or other, like a scientific society in London um, there's an eminent scientist who gave a pretty pessimistic speech about how the world was going to run out of food because we were running out of fertilizer. And the uh, Europeans basically in the 19th century had the reason why there's so many European cities in South America is they used to trade South America and they built these cities to get the bat guano on these giant, like, I guess these offshore islands off of uh, Chile and Peru. There was these massive like islands filled with bat shit basically. And they were importing that stuff by the megaton on these ships because it was their gunpowder and their fertilizers, ammonia, you know, which is basically, you know, the, like the Oklahoma city, city bombing was like fertilizer, fertilizer and explosives are chemically very similar. And so they were running out of this ammonia, ammonia fertilizer, which was used to basically grow all the crops in Europe. And this guy said, we're in big trouble. We're getting low on this stuff and, you know, we're going to have to reduce the population or whatever else they were suggesting. Uh, and it turns out that the most common uh, element in the air is nitrogen and that you can make ammonia from that in the air, from the air. You can make fertilizer from that. I, apparently, I guess it's a different kind of nitrogen that is not as, uh, nitrogen in the air, it's not capturable very easily as a liquid to put it into a form where you can make it into fertilizer. And they had tried many times and it wasn't possible but some German scientists actually figured out how to do a little bit of it. And then that little bit, they kept refining the process and enlarging the factories that did it. So they basically solved this problem. And I think we still use the same process today to make ammonia-based fertilizer from the air, 
now. And the book's called The Alchemy of Air. There's kind of a tragic part of it where the Nazis kind of co-opted him because this is in Germany in the beginning of the uh, 20th century. But the invention is was seismic. And I, I think it's a good illustration of how we innovate out of our problems. We don't go backwards. We don't say, okay, well, we're just going to have to call the population from, I don't know what it was, a billion back then, down to 50 million that we could feed without this new innovation. No, we innovate and now we can feed 7 billion because we have this source of fertilizer. And it's the same thing, you know, with whatever problems that are coming up. We need to innovate our way out of that. We need to not think, we need to not trust experts. We need to think for ourselves. We need to encourage the emergence of a new Einstein, a new Newton, a new scientist in Germany that comes up with, you know, a way to get fertilizer from the air itself. And that's the solution. And it's not ever going to be, you know, we have to all use less fuel and suck it up and go back to the, the dark ages. It's not going to happen. And it's not the way, it's not the way. I mean, think about this, right? Like at one point for most of human history, the vast, vast majority, algebra did not exist. It just didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. It didn't exist. Neither did uh, calculus did not exist. And now those exist. And do we think that We've gotten everything there is to get. Like that's all the math that's going to be invented. No, there's going to be more. There's going to be much more. We're not even, there's the odds that uh, among the infinitely many possible math fields that we could invent, create, that we've gotten to almost all of them, I think are very low. We've only even done this for a short time. And there's probably endless numbers of different systems we could create. And so the idea that like, the best discoveries are behind us is very unlikely. And so if the best discoveries are ahead of us and we've already discovered electricity, the internet, the wheel is a pretty big one. Bitcoin, I think it's going to turn out to be very big for reasons that I've gone into in other podcasts that we've already discovered that. And yet the best is yet to come in terms of what we're going to invent and create. Why are we acting like we're doomed? There's nothing we can do. We need to reduce. We need everyone to have a worse quality of life. It just, it doesn't make sense. And you look at, you know, an entrepreneur, Versus somebody who inherited some money and is just trying to like run out the clock. Like, oh, I just better keep this 5 million and hopefully I can live my whole life without running out of money versus somebody who's like, okay, I believe in myself. I've got some ideas. How am I going to create something? How am I going to make some money? How am I going to add value to society and make money? And that's the attitude, right? That people have that become wealthy and aren't trying to run out the clock. But you have all these people who are already wealthy, these billionaires who were in Davos meeting with each other. And for them, they're kind of running out the clock, right? Because they're like, uh-oh, it's only going to get worse. There's going to be unrest. And of course, they stole so much of the money to get to where they are. And the, the public's going to be very angry. So what they're kind of trying to do is A, run out the clock and B, run out the clock before people wake up and realize that the money they think they have isn't really there. So I don't know. I'm just pretty optimistic. I think there's a, an agenda toward not creating. And the same thing, listen to experts. Don't think for yourself. They're trying to just go in the absolute wrong direction that we need to go in, which is to encourage people to create, make new things, innovate, um, come up with something that no one's ever thought of. And I think it's David Deutsch who espoused something similar to this. And he said something like, you can't even, and sort of why utilitarianism fails even more is you don't even know what options you're going to have. You can't even know things that haven't been invented, what options will be there for the future. So not only you know, do you not know how to optimize for the future, you don't even know what your choices are going to be. And the idea that, you know, oh, we got to do A or B, which is worse, I don't know the cost benefits, without realizing there may be a, an option C that you're not even aware of that's going to be a game changer. And so I just think 
we need to be optimistic and, and think like entrepreneurs and think like people who have confidence in themselves and not, not think like people who are just trying to run out the clock and, you know, hope nobody notices before, you know, run out of money before, uh, before they die. Anyway, I think that's gone on long enough, enough different random topics. Next one, I'll be in LA. Wish me luck. Till next time.